Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding Nature's Archive and looking at key moments in science. In this show, it's back to the swinging 60s, a time when continents too began to move. Nature, 7th September 1963. Page 947. Magnetic anomalies over oceanic ridges. The paper, when published, went over like the proverbial lead balloon. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of comments in the literature, you know, people referring to it as a startling idea. Now it's kind of taken as one of the first and most important steps on the way towards uh, plate tectonics. But at the time, it kind of fell like a stone in the water. My name is Melinda Baldwin. I'm a historian of science, and I'm working on a book project about the history of nature. My name is Fred Vine. I was a graduate student at, at Cambridge, and I wrote this paper with John Matthews, my supervisor, in uh, mid-1963. What they were proposing in this paper is that we might be able to support continental drift theory, or uh, really more accurately, seafloor spreading theory, by looking at magnetic patterns across mid-ocean ridges, which are um, ridges in the ocean floor. Figure 1 illustrates the essential features of magnetic anomalies over the oceanic ridges. This pattern has now been observed in the North Atlantic, the Antarctic, and the Indian Oceans. In this article, we attempt to account for it. I'm Naomi Oreskes. I'm a professor of the history of science at Harvard University. The idea of continental drift is generally credited to Alfred Wegener, a German geophysicist who first started developing the theory in the 1910s, around 1912, 1913. He wasn't the only person who was thinking about the idea of large-scale crustal mobility, but he probably developed the most fully articulated theory that was very, very widely discussed in the 1920s. His sticking point, and the reason that a lot of people didn't accept his theory, was that he couldn't explain how continents moved. That he had this idea that the ocean floor was uh, almost like a viscous fluid, but people just weren't convinced. One of the main reasons why so many geologists didn't believe in continental drift prior to the late 60s was the influence of physicists in stressing or or being quite adamant that the the mantle or the the Earth's interior couldn't flow, that it couldn't possibly accommodate the movement of continents because it was too rigid. So many geologists 
invoke that line well the physicists say it's impossible you know the, the, the interior of the earth's too rigid so it can't be and so most people thought the theory had been discredited or had been disproven or just not really accepted but then in the 1950s a number of scientists began to look at the question again I first came across the idea of continental drift when I was about 15, revising the exam in geography. I was actually in the middle of a cycle ride in Kent. I was staying with my great aunt and uncle. But I opened a textbook uh, in a rather desultory way of doing some revision. And I opened this book, and the first page of the first chapter was this diagram of South America fitted into Africa. And this mention of continental drift, which people have speculated about, but nobody knew whether it was right or wrong. And I thought, wait a minute, this is incredible. <laughs> That's fantastic. I know, and I never thought I would end up proving continental drift. <laughs> the most important thing that made people rethink the question of continental drift and be willing to reopen the debate was new evidence. There was all this new evidence from the oceans uh, that really invited a reconsideration of the question. But if we think about it in a broader political and cultural sense, it was very much tied up with the Cold War. The United States, the Soviet Union, and to some extent the United Kingdom, became very, very interested in the oceans as a potential theater of warfare in a nuclear world. So both the United States and the Soviet Union invested hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in exploration of the seafloor to facilitate submarine warfare. And oceanographers and geophysicists were the beneficiaries of that. So the story of plate tectonics and the reopening of the debate is very much tied up with the Cold War and very much tied up with how the larger geopolitical environment helps to determine what scientific work we do and what scientific work we don't do. Page 947. In November 1962, HMS Owen made a detailed magnetic survey over a central part of the Carlsberg Ridge as part of the International Indian Ocean Expedition. The way they measured the magnetic field over the oceans at that time was with a magnetometer, a device that measures the magnetic field, and that was generally done by towing a magnetometer behind a ship. Basically, you tow the detector behind the ship to get it away from the magnetic effect of the ship itself. It was a bit inelegant, but it did just about did the job. In fact, we even had to lash one up on board ship in the Indian Ocean because the sharks had cut through the cable uh, and we'd lost all our other detectors. Well, well, my remit was to try and make sense of their magnetic data. The crucial starting point here was that, that Drum, Drum Matthews, who was out in the Indian Ocean conducting gravity and magnetic surveys when I joined the, the group, he did some small surveys, some actual areas. One, the all-important one over the crest of the oceanic ridge in that area, the Carlsberg Ridge, the ship going up and down, up and down many times, and the crew wondering what on earth's going on. Um, so that you can get a detailed, albeit relatively small, survey area. But that was absolutely crucial because you could then begin to see exactly how the magnetics correlate with the topography, and that is crucial. Work on this survey led us to suggest 
that some 50% of the oceanic crust might be reversely magnetized, and this in turn has suggested a new model to account for the pattern of magnetic anomalies over the ridges. Sometime in the Earth's past, possibly multiple times, the Earth's magnetic field had switched. And so sometimes you encountered oceanic crust that was magnetized the standard way, the way it is today. And sometimes you encountered crust that was reversibly magnetized. And so what Vine and Matthews were saying is that if we look at magnetic patterns across oceanic ridges, if, in fact, the seafloor is spreading out from these mid-ocean ridges, we would expect to see kind of a zebra-stripe pattern of normally and reversibly magnetized oceanic crust. If spreading of the ocean floor occurs, blocks of alternatively normal and reversely magnetized material would drift away from the center of the ridge. It seems to be a case of uh, simultaneous discovery. Vine and Matthews were working on their paper independently. Um, Vine, I think, was using some new computer modeling techniques, and they were drawing on the data that uh, the Cambridge Department had collected on their own expeditions. But meanwhile, in Canada, uh, there was another geophysicist named Lawrence Morley, who had also observed in published data that um, you see these interesting patterns of zebra stripes across oceanic ridges. And so Morley started to think, well, I wonder if we're seeing these stripes because the seafloor is spreading out from the mid-ocean ridges. And he actually wrote up the idea and he sent it as a letter to the editor in Nature. He actually sent it before Vine and Matthews sent their letter, but his paper was rejected. But I think this goes back to the way that uh, the editors of Nature at the time, uh, the way they edited the journal. They had very strong connections to um, some prominent British scientists. I suspect what happened is that the Vine and Matthews paper came from Cambridge, covered by a letter from someone they knew. And that immediately got it to the top of their stack. Whereas Lawrence Morley was writing from Canada and didn't really have anyone prestigious recommending his paper. And so it just wasn't a priority. So Lawrence Morley is a man who could be bitter that he had the same idea, it was rejected, and then Vine and Matthews got all the credit. But he's not bitter. He feels like he had a good scientific career. He was part of an exciting time in science. And he's gotten some post hoc recognition, although not as much as Vina Matthews. And Alfred Wegener was the same. Alfred Wegener did not die unhappy. Uh, we have his notebooks. We know something about what he thought. And he was confident that in the fullness of time, the scientific community would develop a theory of continental mobility along the lines of what he proposed. So that kind of faith in the collective enterprise, I find really inspiring. And I find that to be, well, just inspiring. Magnetic Anomalies Over Oceanic Ridges by F. Vine and Dr. D. Matthews. The paper, when published, went over like the proverbial lead balloon. I mean, um, there's all sorts of comments in the literature, you know, people referring to it as a startling idea or, or this can't possibly explain the data. I mean, I, I just... It seems extraordinary. Now it's kind of taken as one of the first and most important steps on the way towards uh, plate tectonics, which is sort of the dominant approach in geophysics. But at the time, um, and, you know, Vine and Matthews have both said this... Um, they felt like it kind of fell like a stone in the water. 
They didn't think that anyone was paying attention to it. They were kind of disappointed by its uh, lackluster reception. What, what surprised me even more, that there were several other people, OK, not many people in the world, no more than half a dozen, who were working on the same problem, that is the interpretation of the marine magnetic anomalies. And I'm surprised that one or two of those in particular uh, didn't come up with this idea. In fact, I know certainly one of them kicked themselves for not doing that. Um, I was even more surprised, really, that those same people who had been wrestling with the same problem as I had as a PhD student pretty well rejected the idea when it was published. I could understand if other people you know, who were not familiar with the problem <laughs> uh, thought it was a wild idea and very speculative. I, I, was, I was quite shocked that people who'd struggled with the same problem <laughs> didn't think it was a promising idea. And, of course, it was two or three years before we were able to prove it. I mean, it was, it was speculative in that sense at the time. So it wasn't until later in the 1960s when uh, Vine started working with a Canadian geologist, uh, J. Tuzo Wilson, and started collecting more and more magnetic data about these oceanic ridges that the geophysics community became converted to the Vine and Matthews model. It must have seemed slow at the time, uh, to Divine and Matthews especially, but uh, in retrospect, that's a, a fast conversion to an entirely new view of the Earth. People began to look more closely again at this question of mobility. And in the next five years or so, scientists began to recognize that the older idea of continental drift, which focused mostly on the motion of the continents, could be integrated into a more global way of thinking that connected the mobility of the continents to the mobility of the oceans as well. And it's that integrated, connected vision that leads to this notion of plates. And so the, the name or the idea of plate tectonics emerges as a way of emphasizing this is not just about the mobility of the continents, but it's about the mobility of the entire crust of the Earth. It seems so obvious now, not least because we have a very accurate picture of seismicity where earthquakes occur. But in the early 60s, we didn't have a very clear picture of the actual distribution of earthquakes. It was 67 when we had a really decent first picture of, of earthquake activity, which picks out the plate boundaries perfectly. And the only reason we had it then, I always like this story because it goes back to the defence implications, is because of the 1959 Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which banned nuclear testing in the atmosphere, which literally drove all the tests underground. And in driving it underground, the Americans and the Russians needed to know what the others were doing, so they set up very accurate uh, state-of-the-art worldwide seismograph networks. And it was only because of that, by 1967, we had a decent map. Once you begin to interpret the Earth in terms of plate tectonics, you realize that virtually all of the major regions of seismicity, of earthquake activity, of volcanism, they all correlate with plate boundaries. I mean, it is our theory of the Earth. So if you teach geology, which I did in the early stages of my career, Everything we teach is in the context of plate tectonics because we understand the phenomenon that we observe. We understand in terms of this large comprehensive framework. So plate tectonics is often referred to as the unifying theory of modern earth science, and I think that's correct. (laughs) 
so many people, um, cameramen I work with over the years, they say, well, I did this in, in primary school in the early 70s. I didn't realise it had only been discovered a few years before. <laughs> you know, they seem to have known for ages. Nature, 7th September 1963. Science in general does move forward in quantum leaps, you know, as every now and again there's a breakthrough, you know, <laughs> and suddenly it opens up whole new vistas. Editorial and Publishing Offices of Nature, St. Martin Street, London. Telephone number, Whitehall, 8831. You've been listening to The Nature Pastcast, produced this month by Charlotte Stoddart, with contributions from Fred Vine, Melinda Baldwin and Naomi Oreskes. Next time, a proposal from the 1990s for how to test for life on other planets. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.